You're listening to The Sidebar by NYABJ, a show about the world of media through the lens of Black media makers. I'm your host, Carolyn Adams. And this week, we're exploring pay equity and what new measures could mean for Black journalists and media makers. You don't want to miss this conversation, but we're starting this episode at a celebration that took place in Brooklyn earlier this fall. After two years online, 3,500 black and brown creative professionals returned to Brooklyn Navy Yard's DeGaulle Greenhouse for what's been described as the ultimate creative homecoming. We are here at CultureCon. What's up, CultureCon? CultureCon. CultureCon. CultureCon, honey. (laughs) Yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What is CultureCon? Forged by the Creative Collective NYC, CultureCon first started in 2017 as a way to uplift and support diverse creatives, entrepreneurs, and young professionals. What started as a single-day conference is now part of a week-long series of exclusive events, workshops, activations, and experiences that cater to all aspects of creative and young professional life. And five years later, it's still growing. In fact, this was the last stop on a three-city tour that drew upwards of 8,500 creatives of color and 100 heavy-hitting speakers, including the likes of journalist Elaine Welteroth, voting rights vanguard Stacey Abrams, actor Winston Duke of Black Panther fame, Red Rooster chef Marcus Samuelson, and so many more. But at the same time as Culture Kong's triumphant return, New York City is still recovering from the pandemic and facing great inequities around issues like housing, transit, healthcare, flexible work, and the sky-high cost of living. In fact, New York City now tops the list of the most expensive cities to live in in the world. And many of the creatives who attended CultureCon share these anxieties about money in particular. During a panel on building Black wealth, celebrity photographer and native New Yorker Raven B. Verona touched on one taboo type of money conversation. I feel like the only way to get comfortable is to talk about it, right? Like, I mean, no matter what field you're in, they tell you not to ask the other person how much money they make. You don't know what your, you know, coworker is making. You don't know what your boss is making. And I feel like that lack of visibility and transparency is what keeps people in the spaces they're in. Where like, how many times do you feel like you underbid yourself or you don't know, you know, what are your photos being used for? Like, you're like, okay, I'll do this job for 2K and then, this photo is being licensed to be a billboard and make a company millions of dollars, and you didn't think of that. So I feel like my purpose right now, beyond like growing my own business, is helping people understand that because there's money to be made. That's all Absolutely. I'm and I feel like we're not <laughs> so what would it take for black and brown newsmakers and creatives to finally get paid what they're worth? And where does salary transparency fit into this issue? I sat down with a local news editor and an economist to get some answers to these questions and more. Here's that conversation. Our guests today are Hassani Gittens, a deputy editor at The City, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan digital newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York, and Michelle Holder, an associate professor of economics at John Jay College, part of CUNY. She's also a distinguished senior fellow at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth in Washington, D.C. So thank you both so much for joining us on the sidebar today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So before we start, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourselves and your work? 
Um, yeah, I work at the city. I'm a deputy editor, one of two deputy editors, me and Alyssa Katz. I've been there since the beginning or before the beginning. I basically helped found it with Jerry Hester, who actually works at the Community J School now. I've known for, known for a long time. Before that, I was at NBC News for a really long time, off and on, basically 10 years, six years in a stretch the last time being a senior news editor for digital. I worked at The Daily, which was a startup. And I don't like to say it, but my first job in journalism for about eight years was working at The New York Post. Um, all of this is now like the apology tour. Like that's why I'm in like nonprofit, like really grassroots journalism now to make up for that first decade of my life. And I went to Baruch College, CUNY, where I learned journalism at the Ticker student newspaper. We could say the Ticker was your first newsroom. Yeah. The Ticker's and pretty legit. going hard at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I love the fact that CUNY, the City University of New York, is in the house. So a little bit about me. I'm an economist, a labor economist by training, and I particularly look at the status and position of women and people of color in the American workforce in terms of outcomes, wage differentials, unemployment, employment, uh, industrial and occupational distribution, things like that. I've been an academic now for about eight years, but prior to that, I was actually an applied economist, and I only worked in either the public sector or the nonprofit sector, um, including the the New York State Controller's Office. I worked for uh, Demos, which is a public policy think tank. So yeah, I'm I guess a do-gooder <laughs> by trade and training. I'm a second-generation immigrant on my mom's side. She's an Afro-Latina, or was, because she's, she's no longer with us, but an Afro-Latina from the country of Panama. My father's African-American from Georgia, and I'm a native New Yorker, born and raised. My grandfather is from Barbados, but my mother is from like the South, too, so the same kind of mix. Yeah. I love the synchronicities. Um, so, Hassani, can you first introduce us to the city, the outlet? and describe some of the reporting that has been done during the pandemic and now here in recovery. Yeah, I mean, I always say that we're still in the pandemic, really, you know, but we started in April 2019. And so like really right before the pandemic. And when we started, we had five borough reporters and five senior reporters just trying to cover what we could. We kind of used to say no story was too small, no story is too big. I guess now we probably have about 20 reporters. We just moved to new offices. We're stretching out our legs and stuff. And shook up the world on a couple of stories. I think some people might blame us for Brian Benjamin not being the lieutenant governor anymore and certain other things. Whoa. And we were just getting our footing, you know, in March 13th when everybody had to leave. March 13th, also coincidentally, is my mom's birthday. It was her last birthday. She died in the pandemic. Um, and a lot of people, my editor-in-chief's mom died in the pandemic, you know, so many people. And so it's just, we're all going through this thing and we're trying to catalog it and be journalists about it, but we're also living through it at the same time. And, you know, that was difficult for a lot of people. You know, we've got reporters who, you know, they didn't want to leave their houses a lot. But so much has changed. People say everything has changed in New York or nothing has changed or it went back to like the old New York because a lot of the kind of gentrifiers left. There's just, just so many things going on. And for us, we just kind of look for stories that are like, how are regular New Yorkers impacted and what can we do to help them understand what they need to do for themselves, to help them navigate the system, to help them understand civics. I mean, we had a whole new voting system last uh, time with ranked choice voting, explaining how that works, explaining how ballot measures work. We did stories about how in the disabled community, they were like, actually, all these MTA meetings that are online now, we don't have to schlep down to downtown to get to them. This is really great. And then when they try to switch it back, they're like, hey, wait a minute, we actually like these virtual meetings. So we're just always out there just trying to keep people informed, let people know what's going on, hold the politicians accountable. 
then you mix in the the racism hysteria and white supremacy and it just you know it's 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 a lot to deal with right now and that's what we try to cover at the city it, it's a lot is the understatement of the century and i mean even during the pandemic i thought it was really meaningful that the city made sure that the COVID coverage was thorough, it was accessible, you know, tracking COVID cases and hospitalizations and fatalities, but also collecting and sharing stories of the more than 42,000 family and friends and neighbors that we lost from coronavirus. And part of that recovery process here has to do with what we're willing to do to live and survive in a city like New York. So how can we explain, if we can, the exorbitant costs of living and housing here in New York City? That's for either of you. <laughs> I'll let the economist handle that one. <laughs> Thank you for that, Hassani. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll give it a, I'll give it a shot. Um, I mean, New York City has always been a city that typically it's difficult for working class people to afford. And certainly with the nearly year-long inflationary period that we've seen, that's become even harder. You couple that with the fact that we've all probably known someone that we lost during the pandemic or a family member that we lost. So when we think of the pandemic, we don't necessarily think of, well, what could we say came out of that that was maybe positive? I think one thing that did come out of that, which we could look at in a positive light, is the fact that workers, particularly essential workers, really began to recognize their worth to the U.S. economy and, in fact, you know, began expecting and even demanding higher wages. And that has been somewhat successful, particularly at the level of the most poorly paid workers. You know, when you think about our delivery people, cashiers, pharmacy workers who are not actually pharmacists, right? Um, so that occurred and was helpful in terms of allowing individuals and families, particularly in areas, you know, like New York City where the cost of living is higher, be able to now afford the things they couldn't afford before. Unfortunately, all of those gains were wiped out because of increased inflation, right? And we did just get the report that inflation has ebbed a little bit. You know, it's come down slightly from 8% to 7%. Um, at least it's going in the right direction. But the thing about New York is that it's historically been a locality where the cost of living is simply higher. And, you know, we just really kind of can't get around that. Yeah. But I think as New Yorkers are weighing out rent and groceries and transit and gas and so much more, they're also thinking about work differently. And I'd like to start by talking about this new salary transparency law here in New York City. Hassani, can you tell us a little bit more about the law and how it's supposed to work? Basically, any job that is posted by any employer with more than three employees, they have to post a salary. They can't just say, hey, there's a job, we're hiring a scientist and you come in and you start negotiating, you don't know where you stand, they have to say between, and they say it has to be a... a, a good faith. Yeah, good faith, exactly, <laughs> range on the salary. So it can, I think Citibank was called out for posting a salary for like 49000 to like $2 million, but then they, they changed it again. It was still like 49000 to like 200000 Some media companies have already been called out. Some people are, are doing it. Some people are half doing it. And the, the City Commission on Human Rights is relying on anonymous tips. So like if you see something, you're supposed to say something. If your employer isn't doing it, you're supposed to say something. After the tip, the company has 30 days to, to correct it. If not, they could get fined up to $250,000 per instance. But we'll see. It's 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 just starting and who's, who knows how it's really going to go and who knows what the you know enforcement is going to be like. Yeah. 
but why might companies not want to comply? Why might this be a big ask? I'll jump in. So I wrote a piece for an organization called the Roosevelt Institute in New York City where I specifically looked at the undervaluing of black women workers. And one thing that I outlined in that brief is that if black workers and women workers and the combination of the two black women workers are being undervalued, these are cost savings that these companies are reaping. So essentially, it is, um, it's a labor cost that they don't have to outlay. So they can retain it and then they may deploy it in a variety of ways. They may use it, for example, to pay management better. They may use it for you know, distribution of dividends to their shareholders if they're a publicly held company. They may retain it and, and use it for you know, research and development. But the case is quite clear that if companies underpay workers based on race, based on gender, based on ethnicity, these are cost savings that they retain. And in fact, there is an economist who wrote a paper suggesting that the fact that companies overwhelmingly underpay black women, and Hassani, forgive me, because this paper was about black women, but you, know, you could generalize it to black workers, including black men. Um, this economist hypothesized that because black women are overwhelmingly underpaid in the US workforce, this allows companies to pay a premium to white male workers. So that is one way that those savings could be deployed to pay a premium to white male managerial staff. So mm, that's we'll definitely get back to speaking about that. But Michelle, this idea of pay equity or lack thereof is really much larger than just New York City. Advocates have long spoken about what statutes like salary transparency can do for this cause, but can you explain the gaps for someone who is new to this? What is the issue and what's the scope of it? Yeah. Absolutely. So, so I'm going to distinguish between the racial and gender earnings gap and the racial and gender wealth gap, right? Because those are two different things. But, but with regard to the pay transparency legislation in New York City, this is really talking about and meant to address earnings gaps, right? And so as an economist, I'm going to try not to use too much economic lingo, <laughs> But um, when we talk about black workers and white workers in the U.S. economy, there is absolutely what is called a racial wage gap, which essentially is, on average, what does a black worker in this country earn when compared to a white worker? The last estimate of that by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is a federal statistical agency, um, in 2020, that agency estimated that black workers earn on average 79 cents for every dollar white workers earn, right? So there's no gender element there. It's just black workers, white workers. Then there's the separate issue of when you look at women, the so-called gender wage gap. And according to the same agency using the same data for the same year, women workers earn about 81 cents to the dollar that male workers earn. And mind you, in both of these comparisons, they're talking about full-time workers. So, you know, you can't make the case that, oh, women may work, you know, more so part-time and they're including that and that's skewing the data. No, they're really comparing full-time workers, black and white, full-time workers, mm -hmm. men and women. There's also the complicating factor that when you talk about black women workers, they are actually subject to both 
the racial wage gap and the gender wage gap. There's a, a nonprofit called the National Partnership for Women and Families in D.C. that estimates that on average black women earn 64 cents for every dollar that white men earn. So they actually compare black women to white men. And why do they do that? Because black women are actually lowest on the pecking order in terms of compensation and earnings and wages, and white men are at the top. And that's precisely what I also did in my paper. I compared the least to the most, black women to white men. And so I'm gonna try to quickly move to what does this mean at the individual basis and what does this mean for the black community in this country writ large. So individually, when I looked at black women and there are 10 million black women who work in this country, what this meant was that on average, we are earning anywhere between 10 to $20,000 or more depending on the occupation, less than our white male counterparts. That is per year. You also have to think about what does that mean cumulatively over a mm. lifetime of working? If you work 30 years, 35 years, that could mean a million dollars that black women are underpaid as compared to their white male counterparts, right? And so finally, what I'll say is that's at the individual basis and that's only looking at black women. We also have analogous issues for black men. But then when you think about the black community, what does it mean in terms of resources available to the black community with regard to what it is we bring home? What, what is the bacon that we bring home to our families, our communities? And what I showed in this piece that I did uh, for the Roosevelt Institute is that per year, Black women alone are underpaid to the tune of $50 billion per year by the for-profit private sector. Because I, I excluded public sector employment, I excluded you know employment in the nonprofit sector, I just looked at the private for-profit sector. $50 billion. You could imagine how our community could deploy that money, particularly during the pandemic, right? When, you know, we were losing jobs, when childcare availability shrank, when all kinds of issues regarding resources were of essence at that time. And so that's just for black women. You could imagine what that figure is like for the black community writ large. What are we being underpaid in the aggregate in the for-profit private sector in the US. And what does that mean for lost resources for our communities, for our children, and for our children's future? And it's it's pretty big, it's it's humongous. Yeah. So I'll stop there. It's almost like we're doing 30% slavery or something. Absolutely. I call it in, in the piece that I did, involuntarily forfeited wages. Yeah. Right? Because as an economist, I have to speak in the language that other economists are going to understand and, and get. And so I actually term it involuntarily forfeited wages. We don't know necessarily that we are being underpaid unless we find out, oh, this person who is from another demographic, another gender, what have you, is being paid more than me. We have similar characteristics, similar experience, similar educational attainment. We often don't know that we are being underpaid. So it's involuntarily forfeited, but it's, it's, it's yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I feel like, I mean, just on that last note, I, I feel like I saw it when I started going into the corporate world, you know, it's 
It's almost like with voting too, I feel like uh, white society or white people, they never want to talk about the salaries. Like, oh no, you're not supposed to talk about that. And it's like, oh, I know why you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's like, oh, now I understand. I've heard from some reporters who are looking into this new law that one thing that they're just hearing is that you're just grumbling at places now because people are like, wait, that's the salary range? How, why am I not making? I didn't realize that's what we're paying people out here. So that's a good thing. That's the beginning. That's, you know. See if it yeah. catches on. Absolutely. I think if you think about a lot of the union work and things that have happened over the last year regarding labor, that's where collective power comes from. And that's also, of course, what some institutions and power players are not excited about. Um, when we think about people living at the intersections, and I also want to add in sexuality, citizenship status, for example, in terms of the work that you've done, is that something you've explored as well? I would include among those characteristics that you mentioned, Carolyn, disability mm -hmm. status, right? Yeah. That's a biggie. So I work with a lot of data and I rely on what's mm -hmm. available to me. And in terms of just looking at race and gender and ethnicity, by the way, because mm -hmm. I've also looked at um, the intersection of race, ethnicity and gender in terms of Afro-Latinos and Afro-Latinas, um, that is so challenging <laughs> in and of itself. And there's still so much research that I need to do and avenues that I need to explore in even finer detail. And this is not to say that that isn't incredibly important, but it is to say that the data that is available from our federal agencies and our state agencies are not robust enough. Some of them don't even offer variables where I could look at a worker's right. disability yeah. status. Some of them don't offer variables where I could look at their citizenship status. But we all know, right, because we get these numbers, black unemployment, white unemployment, women's unemployment, those are the stuff that they'll provide and that they'll have for me to use for analysis. So We've done our own kind of diversity report. We were supposed to do a salary report. It, it became more complicated than I think it really needed to be. But anyway, one of the things I was going to say is that sometimes Companies feel they either can't ask or can't even release certain information, like sexual orientation information, sometimes a lot of disability information. It's like a don't ask, don't tell kind of policy a lot of times in terms of HR. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Since this particular law applies to all employers across New York City, presumably news outlets, media and film companies, and those who employ journalists and creatives of color will have to change salary practices as well. So how do you think that this might impact our work as journalists and as creatives here in New York City? I mean, I hope that it will help, especially journalists of color and women journalists, just get more money. I, you know, it's one of those businesses where there can just be wild, wild variations in salary. I feel like personally, I've actually sometimes been in the recipient of the benefit of that. But I mean, I used to make nothing at the post, like literally nothing. I was probably making $39,000 just to work like my butt off all day long. But luckily, I happened to be standing with a white guy who also made the same thing. We had talked about it just because we were just like that. And this other new white kid was hired and I was like, hey, what would they hire you for? Just because I ask hard questions to people. And he was like, 55,000. And me and the white guy were both like, what? And I literally went to my boss's office and I was like, $55,000? She was like, how do you know that? I was like, it's my job to know things. <laughs> Did you? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, I've been here for like, I'm so much better than this kid. Like I'm like seven times better than him. And she's like, well, just put more overtime on your timesheet. But like, that was just such a jerry rigged kind of weird way to do it. But when you're empowered with that information, you can make big decisions like that. You can go in and say, boom, right now, hey, I don't make enough money. You pay this person this, or you've got the salary listed for this. One of the things for 
in all fields, but especially in journalism and for young people, young people of color, young women, one of the things that stops them from having a good salary at like a big place is that all along the way, they've had smaller salaries. And so you're coming with a salary history that's just lower Mm -hmm. than a lot of people. And like back to that story, I was asking a friend of mine who happened to be an Asian woman, but you know, my same age group, we went to college together. And she was like, you should ask for double, what did I say? I was like, what? That's crazy. Really? Because I never negotiated anything before. And she was like, yo, ask for double. And I was like, I don't know about that. And so, but when they sent me an email saying, hey, this is going to be your salary. And I was like, "Eh, I don't really even care about this job that much. So let me just say something crazy. And I said, I wrote back and I'm like, I want to need dozens of thousands of dollars more. And within five minutes, like the vice president of finance, he called me and he was like, hey, Asani, uh, this is so-and-so. What does dozens of thousands mean? (laughs) And I'm like, you know, 12, 36, 24. And they gave me $15,000 more, like five minutes later. And I was like, wow. And like, and since then I realized like, you gotta go hard for yourself. And I think a lot of employees used to just chalk it up to like, oh, these black women aren't negotiating for themselves. Or these young men, or these young black men, or these Latina women. And it's one, because we didn't know a lot of times, you know, a lot of white guys have these just great networks, family and friends that just are telling them business experience all the time. So they just go in and like, I want this much. And then when the employer is called out for salary disparity, they're like, no, well, he asked for it and she didn't. And it's like, Okay, I mean, you're right, but like transparency will give them the tools and the information to just start trying to ask. I think we probably need more talking about in general, like you need to fight for yourself, especially when you have actual experience and you can say like, no, I actually have done all this. And talking about the money that black people aren't getting, it excludes part-time work. And it excludes the idea that black people are often doing more in these jobs than white people making more. So it's like, how much more money are we not getting, you know? So I hope like just the knowledge will help people a lot. This conversation, you know, more conversations like this will help empower people to start just asking and speaking up for themselves. And maybe you hit a critical mass where people getting paid the same and in, in, in what they're worth. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I have to piggyback on what Hasani yeah. said because I actually, in this same paper I keep mentioning, but I wrote it. <laughs> my main recommendation is that if you're in a position where you can negotiate your salary, right, either you're being hired or you're being promoted or transferred or, or what have you, after you've done all your due diligence, you've reached out to your networks. And it is true that black people have weaker networks than white folks in this country. So their networks do play a role, as you mentioned, Hassani. I say after you've done all your due diligence, ask for more. The most they can say is no, but typically what's going to happen is they will give you more because as a black person, as a black worker, as a black woman worker, typically speaking, you are going to be underpaid during many instances in your career. So whatever figure you land on, I'm not saying necessarily double it. And it's a good thing. It, it sounds sounding like you're like, no, nah, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I was like, they want me to. Point. You want me to look crazy? Right. I don't say double it because actually the research shows when black people and women go in there with guns (laughs) blazing, that that works to our detriment. It shuts people down because we're not conforming to employers' perceptions of how we should be negotiating. But what I do say in my piece is that whatever figure you land on, bump it up between five to ten percent at a minimum. Just do it. Just get in the habit of doing it. And I got to say, just like in Hassani's case, I always do that and I almost always get it. Yeah. <laughs> because 
it's not even that much and I'm probably being still underpaid even with that extra. And the final thing I'll say is, you know, the, the research around paid discrepancies and paid disparities, you know, regarding gender and regarding race and regard, regarding ethnicity usually revolves around two main elements. It is either a pay transparency issue at heart or it is a hiring and employment practice that is shown to have disparate and discriminatory outcomes, such as credit checks, such as barring ex-felons from certain occupations, such as, you know, asking people, do you have prior criminal convictions? And as Hassani mentioned, asking people for their prior salary history. Research is very clear on that. It disadvantages women and people of color. Why? Because we are subject to these racial and gender wage gaps. So when we send a salary history to an employer and a prospective white candidate and or white male candidate sends their salary history, nine times out of 10, ours is gonna be lower. Yeah. So these are practices that are shown to have disparate discriminatory outcomes. and so regarding wage disparities, it really revolves around those two issues, pay transparency and practices that are shown to have disparate outcomes. Absolutely. September 21st was Black Women's Equal Pay Day this year, and it's designated as the day in which Black women have had to work into the next calendar year to make what their white male counterparts made as of last December. And so my understanding is that for the first time, the gap has widened. And in the words of Cardi B, what is the reason? Like, why? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, there are economic explanations for why Black Women's Equal Pay Day was even later this year than in prior years. And obviously, the pandemic plays a big part. But here's the thing during the early phase of the pandemic, it was really black women and Latinas had the highest unemployment rates, which is typically not the case, right? During recessions, it's typically black men and Latin men who have the highest unemployment rates. In fact, you know, during the Great Recession, that was absolutely the case. And I wrote about that, that black men had the highest unemployment rate of all demographic groups. Now, you know, you fast forward to this pandemic where a certain sector of the economy, the service sector was actually targeted, right, for economic slowdown and or closure that disparately affected women because women are more so glutted in the service sector than men. The, the economic issue there has to do with what's called scarring. And that means what are the long-term implications of, for example, when you lose your job? And what the evidence shows is that for any stoppage in, in your employment history, it has a dampening effect on wages going forward for really the rest of your career. And so that is one potential explanation why this year it took black women longer to earn you know, the same as their white male counterparts because of the scarring effect of the pandemic, because the fact that the unemployment rate for black women actually hit 16 to 17%. That leads directly to scarring, the stoppages in your career trajectory, which going forward has a negative effect on your ability to negotiate wages. It has a negative effect on your ability to even find employment, right? Because employers tend to look disfavorably upon people with gaps in their work mm -hmm. history. We all know they're gonna be gaps, right? There was a pandemic, unemployment skyrocketed. Mm -hmm but employers still look 
unfavorably on candidates that have longer spells of unemployment than others. And that was the case for black women and Latin women. Yeah. And can I add one thing that we've written a couple of stories on, we noticed that you know, the pandemic caused a shortage of childcare and it was impacting women so much more. Like even if there's a father and a mother in the home, the woman it just falls on to take care of the kids so they can't go back to work as much or they can't go to full-time work as readily as they would have been if it wasn't for this whole other thing going on. And in addition to that, the irony, right, is that when I looked at the jobs that black women were most likely to lose during the first few months of the pandemic, the most likely job was as cashier, but the second most likely job was as childcare mm -hmm. worker. Mm -hmm. The childcare industry severely contracted during the pandemic, and it was deleterious on both sides for families that needed those services and for the women of color who predominate those yeah. jobs in this country. Yeah. I know you've spoken about this on CNBC and CNN and New York Times and more, but what can we expect here for black workers going into a recession still on the, the ebbs and flows of a recovery from the pandemic? Yeah, so this is a point of consternation, not just for me, but I think for black economists in general. I'm just going to talk about my profession, right? And that is, you know, because we are in this high inflationary period, the Federal Reserve Board basically had to act to try to cool down the economy such that you know prices wouldn't continue to spiral out of control. And their main tactic was to raise interest rates. But what, what happens when they do that is that unemployment does increase in the country. But here's the kicker. Black unemployment is a multiple of white unemployment. So if the Fed is saying we're at 5% unemployment, we need to get to maybe 6% or 7% to cool the economy down. That, that increase is at the average, but that then means for black workers that their unemployment rates are gonna increase by more than one percentage point, more than two percentage points. Our unemployment rate is not one-to-one -one for white workers. It's not even one-to-one in terms of the average unemployment rate in this country, it's a multiple of. So if the Fed is trying to cool down the economy, it just means disproportionately more of us will be unemployed. And so, you know, my hope is that now that the interest rate does seem to be on a downward trajectory, that the Federal Reserve is going to pull back the reins a little bit on what it's trying to do, because it absolutely has a disparate impact on black and brown workers. Mm. So what more do you think needs to happen as we move into a new course of you know, New York City's history and the country's history? And like, where do you hope that we land? Uh, I guess I'll start. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, America needs to change completely and society needs to change and people need to be nicer to each other. Um, but I think in some ways it's like, I believe the children are the future. And I think one of the reasons why you're seeing all this agitation is that the younger generation was like, hey, how come I don't have this? Or how come I'm not equal to that? And it can be good. And I think that people are talking about this. Um, and I think that's just the beginning. And I think that eventually the same people who are learning these lessons will be bosses. And I think it's probably a generational thing before we get to true change. But it seems like a small step. I think it's also going to be about enforcement. It's going to be about people staying on this issue. It's going to be about media outlets like us, you know, every year or so saying like, okay, here's the stats. Here's who's complying. Here's who's not. Here's what the city or agencies are doing about it. And just making sure that this becomes a thing that we're, you know, invested in. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. This is a step in the right direction. It's 
you know, as Hassani mentioned, we're in the early phases of this piece of legislation. So yeah, there are going to be a lot of kinks to be worked out. There are going to be loopholes that corporations will try to exploit in terms of adhering to this, this piece of law. Um, but I feel like the country is moving in the right direction in terms of trying to address the racial wage gap, the gender wage gap, these wage discrepancies and disparities that are really based on ascriptive characteristics such as, you know, race, ethnicity. And why I say that is, you know, it's not just New York City that has enacted pay transparency. There are other states, including Colorado, Connecticut, Maryland, Nevada, Rhode Island, and Washington that have implemented pay transparency laws. So I think there's this real momentum going on with regard to ensuring equal work, equal pay. And so, although right now we have to kind of have a wait and see attitude, and as Asani mentioned, we do need to rely on our enforcement agencies like the Commission on Human Rights in New York City. However, you know, they have been declawed and they have been weakened in terms of past administrations with regard to resources that they have. But I'm going to try to be optimistic just with respect to the fact that it does seem like pay transparency is taking hold in, in several states in this country, and I hope that momentum continues. And I think that's a wonderful point to end on. So thank you both so much for your time today, Hassani Gittins and Michelle Holder. Really appreciate it, and hopefully we are moving in a positive direction. Hopefully. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Before we go, here's a piece of advice that Andre Gray, Chief Creative Officer at Annex 88, shared during a CultureCon panel on setting your rate and charging your worth with Spiked Spin founder Brianna Thompson, travel expert Jessica Nabongo, and entertainment agent R.A. Brown. I think that's important even if you are a corporate worker to make sure that you are tracking the value that you bring and that's an easy way to make sure that you're able forget. to... They'll be like, wait, you did what? Yes. You know right. I did that. You have to send those uh, reminders. Uh, that's, ahead, that's 100%. Andrew. That's exactly what I was going to say. Across the board, when you negotiate, because I actually don't care if I got three years. As soon as I have my list, that's when I'm going back to the table. Right? Hey, if, if month two, I deliver the biggest campaign, one of the biggest clients that you ever had, I come with that list. Because you don't want to come in there and start negotiating and saying, oh, hey, well, I deserve this and I should get this. No, hey. Here's a, here's a spreadsheet with all the projects, all I did, all the things that I've done. And once that starts to look pretty juicy, then you say, now let's talk. I sent you an email with, with what right. I've accomplished. That's your bargaining tools there. And if they don't want it, someone else will want it. The Sidebar is a production of the Greater New York Chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists. The opinions heard in this episode belong to the individuals who express them and not to NYABJ. The music in our show theme is by Halizna Raps, and I'm Carolyn Adams. Subscribe now to join us for more conversations and industry insights straight from the source. <laughs>